Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Beringer Ingelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans. And when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients, the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Beringer Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com equine. Hi, I'm Mike Pownall, and welcome to the AAP Practice Life Podcast. And today we are returning to the subject of telemedicine. And we last spoke on this subject in June of 2020. And joining us again are two guests from that podcast, along with the new one. Before we jump in, though, I do want to thank Beringer Engelheim for their support of the AAP Practice Life Podcast. So let's meet the panel. Uh, learned from it, uh, see what we've learned in three years. So let's start off. We'll go south and then we'll work our way north and across the, the continent. Erica Latcher, joining us from Florida. Welcome, Erica. Thanks for having me. Great to be here again. And so Erica was part of the original panel back three plus years ago. And then moving on up the coast, we have Chris Navis joining us from Pennsylvania. Chris, welcome again. Hello, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. And so let's know what uh, practice you're with or university in your case. Yes, so I work at New Bolton Center. That It's the veterinary teaching hospital of University of Pennsylvania. I'm a large animal internal medicine specialist there, but I work in the cardiology and ultrasound service. So my clinical work and my research and my teaching, uh, it's done mainly in ultrasound and cardiology. And then rounding out the panel is a returning guest, uh, Kelly Zaitunian from San Francisco. Kelly, welcome again. Hey there. Thanks so much for having me on here to join the conversation. To introduce myself, I'm the practice owner of Starwood Equine, which is a multi-doctor practice here in San Francisco area. So let's start at the beginning. So uh, Erica, tell us about your experience with telemedicine. You can tell us what it was like in 2020 when we first chatted and where you are now. My experience with telemedicine probably goes back a long time before 2020, as for most of us, in that I've been around long enough that my first cell phone could store five phone numbers in total and then move forward from there. So texting, you know, all of that kind of evolved. I've always felt like I did it as a young practitioner to establish myself as sort of a resource for clients and maybe a way for me to get status with them. You know, some of the things that all of us young practitioners want is that we're available and so those clients will seek us out. And in the process of that, I'm sure we did some things wrong. And one of the big things we did was we did it for free. So I actually saw 2020 as a way for me to do some things to change that. So we started with, we had a video that we did on how to do telemedicine for us, like how to do a lameness jog up that actually focused on what we want and not the sky and the bushes and the landscaping around, but actually the horse. We did how to take some eye pictures, you know, some of that kind of stuff. And then we worked hard to incorporate it. 
the problem we had really getting it going. Thanks. I was hoping COVID would help us kind of jumpstart it. But the problem we had was our area was already such that we saw a lot of people when they weren't home anyways. And so it didn't really change our practice style enough to do that, but it changed the conversation in our practice. And so we have put in some things that help us charge for it more often. And some of the big things we've done is really looked at where we're the problem, because let's be honest, the veterinarians are the problem. (laughs) I looked in the mirror and said, yes, it's me. I'm the problem. (laughs) And so we have started adding those charges preemptively to certain cases where we think this is going to be something we need. And in particular, like if you think of lacerations, you know, abscesses, foot abscesses, where maybe we want to see how is that horse looking in a couple of days. Some of those types of appointments, we're adding it at the initial appointment. We're saying, here you go. Here is your telemedicine charge that allows you to talk to us for X amount of time. And then we put some sort of time component on there. And then, you know, we move forward from there. And we've gotten a little bit of pushback from clients doing that, but not as much as I anticipated, which is often true when we adjust prices in my experience. I'm going to hold you right there because we have a whole section I want to talk, really get into how do we charge for this because I know that is usually the biggest question people have because as we all know, so much of this we give away for free. So Chris, tell us about how you're using telemedicine in your practice at uh, at New Bolton Center. Similar to Erica, we, we have been using telemedicine for as long as I can remember probably before before I even know that telemedicine was a word. But we, we used to to use it mainly to consult on electrocardiograms. We consult on many 24-hour electrocardiograms or exercising electrocardiograms or echocardiograms, like uh, stored clips of uh, echocardiograms, or we consult regularly via via email and, and phone. Maybe one of the differences is that we pretty much all of it it's done with a veterinarian. Or we do in telemedicine lingo, I guess we we do teleconsultations, not uh, direct to clients. And and more recently we have added a a new part what did that we didn't do before, which is real time assistance on ultrasound. That's cool. I remember you were talking about introducing that back when we last chatted three years ago. So yeah, how does that work? How is that going? It works very well. The the limiting factor that we have is that it's time consuming. So we do it with veterinarians that for whatever reason, sometimes it's just random in a conversation about a case and say, well, we can do this. And then we start doing and then they tend to repeat. We don't broadly advertise it. Like if you go in New Bolton Center's page and click and then click and then click, you'll find it, but you'll see that it's not advertised. It's a conscious decision. We just don't have the time to do to do a lot of it. But for the cases that we think can help, we do it. And I think the it does help a lot because one of the things that we figured a while ago that doesn't work well for the ultrasound part it's to receive a few still images of ultrasound and try to interpret from there. We feel that there is a much 
missing information as the information that you get. So we end up with more questions than than answers. And and for the ultrasound part, cardiology may be a little bit different because the images are pretty standardized. But for musculoskeletal ultrasounds, abdominal ultrasounds, small parts ultrasounds, uh, it seems like real time. Uh, even though it's much more time consuming, my personal feeling is that we get better quality information. And Kelly, how goes telemedicine in your practice? Very similar, I think, to Erica, at least with we've been using it and have seen, I think, an uptick in probably client understanding and charging for it since the start of COVID. And I think that's been a bit out of necessity times when maybe a doctor or team members are out because they were quarantining or sick and we still wanted to try to provide some assistance to clients or take a little bit of the load off of the team that were still out in the field. Certainly came in handy when I was out on maternity leave. It allowed me to still feel like I was working and feel like I still had um, opportunities to connect with clients and patients and, you know, again, help the team. So I, I think it picked up a lot when I was out because I fielded all of those emails and videos and and I could do it from four o'clock in the morning and just not send my response at that time. So you know, very heavy reliance from that perspective. And then I would also add two other ways that we've really put it to use. One is with the mentorship of newer associates. We've had a couple of new graduates and it's been invaluable in getting them out in the field and seeing patients on their own, but feeling like they have that safety net of someone to check in with, um, much like the teleconsulting uh, that Chris mentioned. And then with staff shortages, we've been so busy and slammed quite a bit that we are leaning very heavily on our technicians, which we just recently talked about that in the podcast. And we will use um, telehealth services with the assistance of our RBTs to actually do additional care. So those are a couple of different ways that we've put it to put it to work. Chris, you talked a little bit about the kind of appointments that work well with telemedicine, and, and, but maybe we can talk about, I mean, if you want to add more to what works and what doesn't work, and I'll ask all three of you, but we'll start with you, Chris. Like, what kind of appointments work? What do you just say, like, yeah, this is, we got a long way to go yet before telemedicine is appropriate for this kind of case? We have a big advantage, which is that at the other end, there is a veterinarian. And also that works well because it's also what we do on a daily basis. It's not that we will never take a, a case directly from a owner in the clinic. We will never take a case directly from an owner remotely though. And having the veterinarian in the, in the other end, for me, it's, it's key. We see telemedicine as sort of an expansion of what we do on site. So, so to me, that's, that's one of the, one of the keys there regarding how to do it, the store and forward versus real time. It's one of the, the big, uh, conversations. I think for us, store and forward works for ECGs and echoes because cardiology is relatively well standardized. But for ultrasound, it's, um, real time seems to work better. And I think the other piece that helps is to establish a relation. Like the first time that we do remote ultrasound, 
it's much harder than the third time and the third is harder than the fifth or the tenth because at one point you just become part of the care team and you start we all speak the same language but there is something that after seeing a few cases you start realizing the same than the people that work in your clinic how they how they think what they what they are good at what they are not as good at the way that that they are thinking so the established relationship also seems to seems to make a difference i think erica how about yourself what works and what doesn't work in your experience we have really 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 liked it for any wounds uh, and that's where we've had really good luck kind of starting the the process with the clients as well as as us you know like adding it to that any wound we see adding it to that invoice uh, and it has been super helpful for us to be like okay no this one's this one's going fine we can we can do some things or no that one's not doing what we expected we definitely need to see that again so is this like the like the first time you see a wound or is this follow-ups with a wound 99% of it is follow-ups. The trick we've had, and we may have a section on this, but I foresee this changing, is seeing it initially, we cover a large area that is not well covered by veterinarians. And so many of those initial wounds are people who have never seen us before. We can't establish VCPR without a physical relationship. So for most of those, it just doesn't work for us. And we say we have to see them. I do see that changing rapidly across the United States, at least, where I wish that it worked better for me and it just doesn't. And maybe my clientele base, but for lameness, it is abysmal. <laughs> In what way? It is entirely related to the quality of the product that I get. <laughs> I think you almost need a film crew to get what we need in terms of video and then, you know, maybe something real time like Chris is doing for ultrasound, but being able to say, okay, now go left, now post on the wrong diagonal, now jump a jump, now do whatever. But I sort of never get what I need in a lameness exam with the exception of my personal trainer, because I, I ride and show horses. She is very well trained to send me exactly what I want as my initial sort of trotting lameness with a rider on exam. But even then, I can't move beyond that. You know, I'll be like, yep, I do need to see that. And we're going to come see it on whatever day. I have a hard time moving beyond that with just the video. So a lot of our, our common things that we see on a daily basis, there are some where we have done some telemedicine with established clients that live far away to say, you know, okay, that colic looks like it needs to come in. But by and large, you know, it's colicking. We probably need to see it lacerations have been a big one for us. Lameness we've tried, haven't done as well with. Foles, it has worked for us in terms of seeing, you know, how's that fold doing? They can send video of it and we can decide it's doing what we needed to if they can get vital signs on it. Those are some of the mostly losses and a, and a definite win. Interesting. Thanks. Kelly, yourself, what do you like and not like with telemedicine so far? I love it. So I agree with you, Erica, for that brand new lameness, especially with a client that you maybe don't have a really well-established rapport, it's not going to work. You need to get your hands on that horse. And in my opinion, I really love it for my rehabbing horses. You know, I give them the week by week schedule and 
I really want to see this horse before it starts trotting for six minutes instead of five, or it starts cantering, or, you know, we start to add in some jumps. I don't necessarily need to physically see that horse and under saddle video tends to do the trick. And I use it quite a bit for, for those types of follow-ups, you know, like, can we advance to the next week or do we need to stay on, on the prior week's plan? I also use it a ton for pre-purchase consultations. We have a lot of courses being purchased from Europe and we have a list of all of the videos that we want and we'll watch those in conjunction with reading the report and reviewing the radiographs. And that's an added value to those clients because they're getting an assessment from someone who they trust and you know, I know what they're looking for. I know or tend to know their level of risk they're willing to take. So it's easier to have some of those candid conversations that a vet who has never met them before and is just subjectively looking at the horse can't provide. Those are great. The other one that I really love it for is talking about all of the diet and supplements and everything else that an owner is using because nothing drives me more crazy than somebody dragging me into their feed room and being ADD. Oh, I give this one sometimes and this one, we have them come up with their list, which means they have to do the homework beforehand and can really look through it and and then have the time to digest, pun intended, what they're feeding and what makes sense and, and not have them standing there, you know, getting distracted by something else where I think it has not worked for us or really like situations where it um, has kind of blown up in our face is not case specific so much as it is expectation management. Um, We've run into issues where we have not effectively communicated that this consult is going to be done asynchronously. We're not available in real time to field all of those emails. And, and so managing that expectation of send us all this information, the doctor has a full day, they will get to it in the next 24 or 48 hours that we've had to be really careful about because we have had a couple of incidents where people expected a very quick response and then were upset when we couldn't immediately stop what we were doing and get to them. Interesting. So Kelly, we'll we'll continue with you. So describe an appointment because I'm really interested in the the flow because, you know, companion animal, they have these apps and people call into the apps and somebody collects money and what have you. But it seems the business model is a bit different with us, maybe not. So let's, uh, I want to really talk about that process. So we'll start with you, Kelly. For us, you're right. You know, I looked into some of the apps and my stance was like the technology is out there and it does not have to be fancy. Why pay someone else for the service? Why am I reducing my margins on that medical advice? So we keep it pretty simple and it really starts with education in the office and them being comfortable and knowing the types of appointments or calls that could be addressed via a telehealth visit. And so um, this is something that I know people like, but the, the office says something like, we can get a doctor out in a week's time, but this actually seems like it is a concern that could be addressed via a telehealth appointment. Our cost is this, would you like to schedule? So that it creates the expectation that they are going to be charged for it, which is the toughest 
part, I think, for all of us. And then, you know, if they agree to that, then we essentially establish, you know, what's the timeline on when we're going to get them a response back. And the office is pretty good. Our front desk is good about knowing, you know, this is something that doesn't need an immediate response versus this is something that does. A majority of our work that we're doing is asynchronous. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of anything fancy going on. It's just gathering the information and the office schedules it for us at the end of the day. And we write our medical record and report back. We will usually give clients one exchange back, like one more question and answer. And if it keeps going beyond that, then we flag that as it's time to actually physically see the horse. If we're getting too much back and forth and you don't charge enough and you can't charge enough, you may as well just get out there in person and be able to have a conversation. And then I'll just briefly say for the appointments where we're using our technicians, that entails getting on a FaceTime video with them and working through. They'll usually do a preliminary exam and then give me a call and we'll have a conversation about it. And then I might ask them a couple additional questions, have them you know, show me the wound or you know, show me the horse moving around and and go from there. So really, we keep it really simple. We utilize the technology that's already easily at hand. Right. I would imagine just, I'm just thinking right now. So in 2020, most of us are just getting used to Zoom. So I guess the comfort level with telemedicine would probably be easier because we actually know how to use Zoom and Teams and whatever. So Erica, talk to us about how you work through an appointment. Like how does this work in your practice? Well, we're a combo of asynchronous and synchronous. For the most part, though, it is people texting in images that they have of something they would like us to see. We say we can do that as a telehealth or we've already established it, like I said, for our lacerations, uh, wounds, etc. So they will send in those images and then we will you know, text back with them. We do sort of have a we have a soft cutoff in our minds of what it is before we're going to say, okay. We can't get done what we need to get done here. We're going to need to see you in person. So that is one way that we do them. And, you know, similar to to Kelly, very similar in all of those. Most of those are not scheduled through the clinic. The clinic may talk to them and say, we can do this as a telehealth, but rarely are they necessarily a straight up schedule. They're just something that sort of appears in our our group uh, text app that we have for the clinic. The other way that, that I end up doing them, because I have a podcast I get a lot of the general public. And so for those, I will do kind of consult telehealth. Those are scheduled. So those are scheduled. They call the clinic, we set it up, and then they're done as like a 15-minute phone call, and they're told they get 15 minutes of my time, and then we move on. Just like a regular appointment. Yeah, interesting. And Chris, how about yourself? How does it work through uh, your relationship with the veterinarians? A bit of a different perspective. Yeah, so we do two two or even three maybe different types. The asynchronous one, uh, that one we handle through a website. There is a website that has a form that includes the history, the signalment, and uh, uh, you can upload their files, either electrocardiograms or images. And then we assess those. Most of the time we give a call to the veterinarian because like as much as you 
want to just type a report, etc. I, I think the phone call, the conversation helps. So typically, we make a phone call that sometimes is very quick just to say, here, this is what we see. This is the history that we have. Are we missing something? No, that's it. And then we write a letter. And then off it goes. That's the asynchronous ones. The real-time ones, we typically receive a request or in a conversation and the phone comes up that this may be useful. And if it's the first time, we typically do a dry run because that involves connecting an ultrasound machine through a set of cables to a computer or a tablet uh, and then start a video conference call. And and it's a straightforward once you've done it once, but the first time it's like, well, which end of the cable goes here, which end of the cable goes there, test the internet connection. It's it's not any different than, than testing a podcast, right? So it's it's the same, just with an with an additional uh device that it's an ultrasound machine. And then same thing, the the console it's done. If if it's musculoskeletal, we often now include and a specialist in sports medicine, in addition to the imaging, because it, it feels like, well, I can help with the imaging, but then there, there are people that know more about the lameness itself. So sometimes then it becomes a, a conversation between the on-site veterinarian and the sports medicine specialist and the imaging specialist. And, and I think that goes back to, we want to try to replicate as much as possible to what we have on site. Like to me, what we have in our referral practice, well, one of the biggest advantages is that I go, I walk out my office and then there is a specialist in the next office and a different one in the next one and a different in the next one. So we try to replicate that a little bit. Uh, and maybe the last one that we didn't mention before that uh, it's that you mentioned apps and then it came to mind that we do also research that includes uh, telemedicine and includes mobile health. We use um uh, wearables or fitness trackers. And so one of my main research interests are exercising arrhythmias and monitoring performance. So we monitor athletes, mainly three-day eventers now. And um, we create groups with the rider, the trainer, the app managers, the local veterinarian, and ourselves. And these fitness trackers record how much the horses exercise. They have a GPS, they have heart rate, they have ECGs, they have motion sensors. And we sort of discuss all the results from the perspective of uh, mainly injury prevention or horses that have heart disease or monitoring for performance or optimizing performance, if you will. Interesting. So cool. This is, you know what, just listening to this, comparing some of the discussions we had a few years ago, the, the field has grown. This is really the meat and potatoes. This is the main course of the discussion. So how do we charge for these appointments? That whenever I talk to people about telemedicine, even within my own practice, that is the question that comes up because we've just been giving it away forever. And now we have to turn around and say, oh, this is there's some value to this. So Kelly, uh, you go first. You're on the you you can start this conversation. We charge in two different formats. One is with just a line item for like a phone consult, an email consult, or a pre-purchase consult. And that is just for those basic things. We know typically how much time it's going to take and can readily set ourselves up with expectations to the clients. We do have a couple of individual clients who tend to take up a bit more time than what we factor in with those line items. And the associates have the discretion to 
um, charge a, a professional time. And so basically just like a lawyer, they are on the clock for what our, our typical hourly rate for professional services would be. And that does seem to work pretty well. People do get nervous. The doctors get nervous. Everybody's probably listening to this thinking like, I just can't charge for it. We started off the first time that we would do a consult. We would actually put it in as a line item, discount it by a hundred percent. And then I have a template email that says, thank you so much for taking advantage of our telehealth services. This was done as a courtesy to alert you to what we're providing and so that you can familiarize yourself with future fees. And so then I can always look back. If I see people discounting again, I can look and see, no, here's the communication where they've already been educated on it. This is being charged. And we, we feel confident that they know about the charges and nobody's going to be surprised by that bill. Fascinating. How about yourself, Erica? How do you charge for it? For us, it's a sliding scale, but like we sort of have the number that's in the computer and that is for kind of all of our our telehealth options, and also for the ones where I do the the consults with clients, and then from there that sliding scale kicks in on those those clients who are uh, a bit more needy <laughs> and and need more. So those will often have a per email fee, or they will have a you know an hourly fee basically for the amount of time they they keep us on the phone. Thanks to one that should have been fifteen minutes and was an hour, and we had to do the there's an emergency coming in, scream in the background to, to get our, our associate off the phone. Uh, the bigger problem I have is, again, my associates are the ones, and, and I'm not great about it either, but we're the, the guilty party. So our office acts as a check on us to be like, you know, that really should have been a telehealth. And the next time we're going to intervene <laughs> and not let you give away your services. So they have been sort of our conscious in the background, making us do what we should do. And Chris, how, how are you charging in the university setting? So we charge after we finish the consultation, we write our report, we send a bill. Uh, we charge approximately the same that we would charge for that service if the animal was in the hospital, in the sense that on the one hand, we use less equipment, we use less technician time. But on the other hand, it's more time consuming to assist someone than to do it yourself. So we feel like those, those sort of balance each other. They are quote unquote consultations that are not charged. And those are the ones that fall on the category of professional courtesy. And most of the times those are self-evident, right? Like someone calls and say, can I talk to you about a case? And it's clear that we are just chatting uh, by the context. Obviously there is the gray zone. If, if we feel there is a gray zone, we, we can say, hey, we're not going to, we want if you are just picking my brain and I'm thinking out loud, I won't charge you for that. If you expect me to look at a lot of images, write a report, write a letter, put it on paper, then there will be a fee and we explain the fees X. Um, but most of the time, just by the context, it's clear which one of the two it is. Chris, we'll stay with you. So, you know, going back when you first started, what do you wish you know then? that you know now about telemedicine? Like what mistakes would you have avoided? Maybe the main one is to not overthink it. It's not anything that you are not already doing. So at the beginning, we did look a lot into 
which tools do we use a specific app do you do we generate like a whole parallel system and workflow different to the one in the in the clinic for telemedicine versus on site and at some point we decided well this is just a tool that allows us in certain situations to be more efficient and reach farther and we use a very similar structure to do things on site than to do them remotely and i think this is what has worked the best so we just uh, that would be the, the main advice how about yourself kelly what do you wish you knew then that you know now I would say that I would want to remind myself that I'm charging not for the minutes that it takes me to answer the question, but for the years of education and experience to get to the point of feeling confident and comfortable providing that input. So not, you know, not second guessing the value that I'm bringing, even though I'm not physically there um, and, and charging for it. And Erica? I would go back and establish a much clearer boundary on the client's access to us just in general. You know, like, so for us, they have a way to text directly that goes to to all of the doctors through Google Voice. And I would like to make that a bit more of a, a wall. Right now, it's a, a very leaky wall, and I'd like it to be a very, very solid wall. <laughs> So last question. So people are listening to this. AEP members are like, okay, I'm going to try it. I'm doing it. Kelly, what advice would you give to somebody who's about to embark on telemedicine or wants to introduce it into their practice? Know and have the confidence that you are providing a service that does have value and you shouldn't feel bad about charging for it. You should feel really good that you are bringing that level of accessibility and care to your clients. I think nine times out of 10, they will also see it that way. And uh, I mean, we have people that now message and say, I'd really love a telehealth, you know, visit. Can you set this up? Um, So they get it and they love the fact that they're not paying a phone call. You know, they're saving money sometimes for those simpler tasks. So I think just dive in, know that you're providing value and don't sell yourself short on what it is that you're bringing to the table. Wonderful. How about yourself, Chris? Any advice for not just private practitioners, but other clinicians that maybe want to introduce uh, telemedicine in a university setting or a referral practice? My main advice is to think to think about telemedicine more as a tool than as a separate entity, right? It is just a tool. It allows it to be more efficient and reach farther in a specific scenarios. It's not for all scenarios. It's very good for some scenarios. It's not good for others. Some people may, it may be that telemedicine becomes the main part of their livelihood, but I think the way that equine veterinarians operate and the way that horse owners think this is going to be a minority. And for some people, change, or for most of us, change is hard, change is scary sometimes, but it, it's, some people have this concern that Telemedicine is going to be like this, maybe this evil force of a foreign country is going to come and overtake our businesses. And uh, But I don't think that's going to happen, right? The way that uh, that uh, veterinary state boards work in the, in the U.S., I, I think that's an almost impossible scenario. The, the, the last thing that I'll say is that 
teleconsultation is different than direct-to-client telemedicine. So for the for the ones that are doing direct-to-client telemedicine, the different states have different regulations. So you need to know what are the regulations on of the state uh, where you are operating, or mainly where the animal is. Uh, so the teleconsultation regulations are straightforward and tell direct to client telemedicine are a little bit, they are not very complicated, but they are so variable state to state. And I think that's the complexity. Excellent. Okay. Erica, last word. What advice would you give to uh, somebody who's wanting to dive into it? I would say start small. If you're super scared, charge $10, charge $15. It'll make you feel better about it at the end of the day. And the next thing I would say is mark down every time someone does not complain about how much you just charge them. Mm, good point. And then have another post-it note on your dashboard for how many times someone is like, thank you for finally charging me for giving away your brain. You know what? Uh, I was wondering when we were going to record this, like it's only been three years, but you know what? It's been a long three years. This There's a lot more here. This is good. This is when we first recorded this three years ago, we were all dipping our toes in the water. So this is wonderful. Thank you all. Thank you to uh, Banger Engelheim for supporting the AEP Practice Life podcast. And I look forward and I hope I see all three of you at the upcoming convention in San Diego. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org. Beringer Ingelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans. And when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients, the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Beringer Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com equine.